March 9th. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Our guest today is uh, Nick Holland. I didn't mention it's 2017 in case uh, you haven't tuned in or, or you're tuning in in the future. It's 2017 right now. Yeah. <laughs> Our guest today is Nick Holland. Hi, Nick. Hi. He is a postdoc in Shenzhen's lab at the Salk Institute and uh, has um, done some important work on understanding the neural implementation of action selection in the context of the dopamine system with friend of the podcast, Paul Phillips, who you did your PhD with, right? And our own Matt Wanat, who's here. Not Matt Wanat, that's a completely different guy, Matt Wanat. <laughs> It's different. It's sort of like Nicodemus, uh, Ultimate Ultra Marathon Runner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't Google Nick Holland, or well, if you don't, yeah, it's not the not the top hit, guys. It's not Ultra Demus, Nicodemus <laughs> Holland. Okay, so um, around the room, we've got uh, as you heard, Matt Wanett. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And I'm your host, uh, Salma Karashi. I thought we'd talk about neuroeconomics today. I don't know if we've actually devoted like. Or some, any real time to that. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah. So the way I understand it, um, and I don't understand a lot of things, so you can correct me. The way I understand, <laughs> the way I understand it, economics is about optimizing value. Um, and it seems like the interesting aspect of applying economic models to human behaviors and seeing where they fail, since we're both rational and um, emotional operators in often predictable ways. Um, so it seems like that part is psychology. It gives us a, this black box that surveys options and implements choice. Can you talk about where neuroeconomics falls in this? I'm assuming it's sort of the black box part of this, right? And, um, you know, what are the goals? What are the tools, the frameworks? Where where do we start? Yeah, I think of it as this sort of nice emerging and pretty well emerged now inter- interdisciplinary field that kind of combines a lot of insight from both psychology and economics at a sort of behavioral level, um, insights from machine learning at the algorithmic level, and then a lot of ongoing neuroscience research. And, and at least where I fit in right now, I sort of come from a more pure psychology background. I've been trying to learn more about all the other disciplines along the way, um, focusing most on the neuroscience, but you know, trying to pick up pieces of economics and uh, the sort of computational stuff in addition, as, as much as I can. Um, so the starting point is always the behavior. And where where does the neural substrate come into this? At what point? Because you're talking about, you know, there's there's sort of models based on psychology. Can, can you say something about what yeah, kind of models are you playing so with or model-free systems or however you want to describe them? Trying to get some understanding of how different mechanisms in the, in the brain might uh, allow, you, allow you to implement the kind of psychological problems of just how we evaluate possible courses of action and then select actions uh, based on the sort of value estimates that we come up with. Um, and it sort of leads us into a lot of the sort of dopamine and basal ganglia and relevant cortical circuitry that a lot of us are interested in in our research. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the, the behavior behavioral approaches are shaped by long traditions both in psychology and economics and kind of trying to integrate both because they don't necessarily always align with each other. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of computational models from, you know, especially sort of things related to temporal difference reinforcement learning algorithms, um, sort of prominent ones that are 
seem to have neural correlates and things happening in the brain that uh, that might relate to, to those kinds of models. So, so, go ahead. You touched on something. You said something in your introduction of like you know you used the word rational and saying that like you know oh. what is rational behavior. And so this is one of the things <laughs> that I've not necessarily pet peeve. I mean, I love neuroeconomics, but it's trying to, you know, <laughs> ascribe rational behavior. And I think we can all admit ourselves, we've done engaged in irrational decisions at some point. Um, in some ways, is that something that people are sort of interested or looking into, you know, in some ways there's disconnect and we don't always find a neural correlate of sort of the rational behavior. And is in that way some sort of meaningful, in a way of, the disconnect, I guess, between, and I guess maybe, is there rational or, behavior? Or, or is the disconnect the fact that we keep trying to fit neural representations into preconceived algorithms, right? Is there, in fact, a temporal difference learning algorithm in the brain? Or are we trying to impose that on different parts of the brain? And the brain performs the same behavior, but using a completely different uh, I, I guess we still have to call it an algorithm, but um, a non-machine-based algorithm. Right? Yeah, I mean, Evan, you know, you opened by saying that you guys hadn't really talked about neuroeconomics as a field a lot in these podcasts, but for listening back to your recent conversation with Jeff Schoenbaum to go kind of meta-podcast here, I think a lot of the things you guys are talking about there were sort of dead on with kinds of the questions that are coming up now, and I wish I could have just, like, injected myself into that <laughs> roundtable you guys had, because a lot of those same good one. issues are here. Well, how about addressing the issue that Carlos brings up? So there have been, there have been quantitative psychological theories of learning and behavior, and then there are these sort of robotics-inspired mm-hmm. psychological theories, but the roboticists are trying to make quantitative psychology that they can implement. Yeah. So there's a, a little bit of a difference there because they want to actually figure out how to implement it. And then once they've put it into implementable form, it's a lot easier for us to look at the brain and ask whether that implementation Have some term is to there. look for, but it so, doesn't necessarily be, need to well, be there in the brain. Of course, the yeah. implementation may not be there, but I think there was a huge step forward when when the robotics-oriented people, the sort of machine learning-oriented people got interested in this problem because they were trying to build implementable theories rather than just descriptive theories right. that would explain things post hoc. Yeah. And that inspired a bunch of people to go hunting in the brain for things. And yeah. of course the hunt isn't guaranteed to succeed, but to some extent uh, it has a little bit. And there's also the okay. question of, you know, you can sort of come up with these sorts of algorithms and optimal control related things. It might be a nice parsimonious system mathematically, but there's no that doesn't need to be what the brain is implementing. It doesn't need to be as parsimonious as the, the sort of simplest forms of equations might make them out to be. Right? So how does it? How, how is it working out? I mean, are we finding those uh, simple algorithms embedded in the brain, or are we not? I'm sorry, that's too general of a question, but I, you know, I, I think there, there's a good bit of work from a lot of groups that does provide some evidence that does seem in a lot of ways largely consistent with at least some of the terms and a lot of the aspects in some of these algorithms fitting together in the way that um, a, a lot of the theories suggest that they might. But even that, even the, the sort of first step of the process of just 
evaluating multiple actions and selecting between those simultaneously presented options at the same time. It's kind of a, you know, we use it in our experiments as a convenient experimental approach that's sort of going beyond what I have a lot of expertise in, but, you know, some, I think there's a new review that's coming out right now from Larry Hunt and Ben Hayden that is kind of questioning that approach as a whole, like, how often am I really just like trying to go from a vacuum to just deciding between two simultaneously presented options and then making the decision based on that? Or is it more of sort of a foraging related um, sort of keep doing what I'm doing and then decide whether to stay or switch, which is kind of a different decision from present two things at the same time and choose between the two of them. And maybe, you know, there's people like Alex Kaselnik and others who sort of come from more of a foraging theory tradition for a while that there may be something more that we might be able to understand at the neural level too if we approach some of the behavioral tasks from that approach as well. I haven't done as much about it. I should think more deeply about it. It's sort of another idea that's out there that's a little bit different from the the more standard framing of kind of a, a one form of neuroeconomic approach. It would still fall under that umbrella as a field, I think, if that makes sense. We would probably be good to hear what the standard Kind of what I was describing that, you know, that an organism has a bunch of available courses of action to obtain some reward and a lot of different factors that can go into um, the sort of valuation of those actions. Um, You know, the rewards you might obtain, any kind of costs you have to overcome to obtain them, various risk, delays, effort, um, and you would sort of weigh up all the different economic dimensions or attributes and form some sort of aggregate decision variable, some sort of overall subjective value for each possible uh, option, and then decide between them. Most of the time, you end up choosing the one that you need to have the most, uh, the greatest subjective value to you, and then learn from feedback based on the outcome that you get, whether it's better or worse than, than what you had expected. So you're talking everything in sort of the positive domain, and I might be remembering this incorrectly, but there's the idea of like prospect theory, where you don't end up, losses are perceived as being worse than they actually are. So the subjective value of a loss is worse than its, you know, actual sort of physical. Yeah, the sort of cliche of losses loom larger than gains, and um, it, it kind of... the draw things in my hand that you can't see on a, on a podcast because I always get concave, concave and convex stuff in the moment, but the kind of, uh, the typical curve of how your sort of overall expected utility, overall subjective value of, um, of a given reward magnitude might decrease with sort of marginal, uh, changes in, in the objective value that, that curvature kind of both get it gets steeper, and um, there's an inflection point once you're in the, the negative domain of losses. Um, yeah, that's sort of Kahneman-Tversky prospect theory. Um, sort of psychologists going into economics and kind of revolutionizing a field of behavioral neuro, neuro uh, behavioral economics that has also informed a lot of neuroeconomic studies since then. So how do we probe subjective value versus objective value in the behavioral domain and then there's the neural domain? Can you just say something about the, the tools here and the language and how we how we get from behavior to neurons and sort of some of the yeah, I mean, complexities there? It, you know, talking about value in any form is definitely this kind of 
internal variable that, you know, whether it's even a real thing. Um, but at least talking about subjective value, what I mean by that is sort of what we can infer from the actual choices that an animal uh, makes, right? So it's sort of an extension of the tradition of revealed preferences, right? There's a lot more to it than that in the economic literature, but just the, the idea that what I actually choose is sort of all that others, other observers would have a way of accessing what it is that I actually prefer. So if I choose one option over another, then you know you would infer that I prefer that option A over, over another option that I don't select. Um, and so, you know, if we're looking for some neural correlate of this sort of subjective value, you would always expect that, you know, given the presentation of a preferred option, if there's some neural correlate, some neural signature of subjective value, you would expect a greater response if it's reflected in some sort of positive, uh, you know, change in firing rate or something like that, um, for something that does reflect subjective value and a lower response if, you know, presented with an option that's, that's non-preferred. Um, they're more sophisticated behavioral designs in ways that sort of testing additional kinds of formal economic notions of utility, but it's sort of a basic starting point. That's kind of the extent that I've used it in, in my work. Um, so you might expect to find some neuron that is the final, final <laughs> common pathway for subjective value. It receives inputs from all those different dimensions, and then it it fires, and then you could say, well, that's the subjective value neuron. Um, of course, there... Or, the, or that's the neuron that fired the most in your experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever your experiment really yeah. is testing. <laughs> that's right? true. You should be skeptical about yeah. I think that was one of the <laughs> kind of early moves of where a lot of people in the field of neuroeconomics saw this as a... Advance or something new to be contributed by it, by looking within the brain at sort of neural signals of one form or another beyond what you might get in pure economics, either you know in theory or in behavioral studies, where you know there's kind of this assumption that people act as if they are maximizing uh, expected utility, maxima as if they're expecting utility, but there doesn't necessarily need to be a thing. That is utility. Economics is kind of agnostic to that, if that makes any sense. But from sort of a neuroeconomics approach, you might go looking for some sort of value signal in the brain, and if there is a correlate in something that's perhaps even causally related to this this subjective value, what's actually driving the choice, then you might be able to find and perhaps manipulate that within the brain. So it's like subjective value may actually have some actual neural representation instead of being this sort of abstract thing that people act as if they are using whether or not they're actually using any kind of utility calculation or not. Um, so if there was <laughs> such a neuron, uh, it would have to exist in a, uh, in a in some kind of a map of things that can have subjective value. So if there are a whole lot of options for me, then I would need to have a sort of spatial map of those options, and then the neurons that live in the place that goes with that option could encode the, the subjective value of that option. Is, is there anything like that? Is there a map of options in which we could go hunting for neurons? No, I mean, not necessarily like a fix, like this one neuron is for this one action, but the idea that within a given context you might get some 
combination or ensemble of neurons in a given area that might act together and respond when presented or considering a possible course of action. Oh, so now you turn it into time. I was trying to make it into space, right? But you're turning it into time. Either so, way. I'm, well, I'm it's different. I mean, there could be two completely different ways of doing it, right? If I'm looking around at my options, then I'm considering each one of them mm -hmm. at a different time, and a neuron could fire as I'm thinking about this option, uh, and then the same neuron could fire less when I'm thinking about that <coughs> option, and so that neuron is encoding the value of both of those two okay, options. Okay, so that's a cross time. Whereas in the other yeah. case, all the, all the options are represented this cluster in of options that are sort of channeled through this group of neurons. Other options are sort of represented yeah. by this, this other cluster ensemble. And then I can compare those yeah, and neurons then there's some at sort the same time in order to decide which right, ones. Some sort do. of competition, perhaps mutual inhibition, where the one that's weaker gets inhibited, the other one... Uh, gets passed through in a sort of winner-take-all type yeah. thing, which kind so, of gets you within the realm. So how many how many options are out there? Yeah, so super expensive computationally <sighs> and neurally. I would guess there's like infinity, right? There probably are infinite options out there. Yeah, that, that's why it's... <laughs> so how is that represented? Well, that's why it's probably <laughs> context-dependent, right? You're going to get some sort of sensory input coming in at the same time as a as sort of motor planning potential potential course of action type signals converging in similar uh, groups of neurons, whatever our unit of representation is at this point. Um, yeah, but I, I don't think that like the, the three neurons or whatever that are involved when you're considering action A in this context are only going to be action A you know, like a dedicated grandmother cell or something like yeah, that. that. I think, I think there's, I was about to come right, there's going to be <laughs> remapping depending on where and what you're trying to decide between. I don't know. That that that's, gets sort of complex and beyond what I'm thinking right now. So what's so, the state of the literature? I mean, people yeah. have gone hunting for neurons that have something to do with value. All kinds of grandmother cells. What, have they, what have they found? Um, the fun thing is you can find a lot of neurons in a lot of places that seem to... Show activity patterns that reflect something that will correlate with something that looks like value of a lot of different flavors, and it doesn't always need to. It isn't always necessarily conclusively subjective value in a way that always will correlate with the sort of behavioral output, the the, the ranking of choices. Um, and there's sort of a lot of experiments that go into try to differentiating that. You know, looking at positive versus negative pedo-aversive domains. Um, you know, you can see sort of reward-related signals in a lot of presumably primary sensory cortices and things like that. You know, we often focus on, you know, dopamine neurons, striatal circuitry, and a lot of sort of cortical, especially prefrontal inputs to the striatum as sort of a major player in these kinds of value-guided decisions. But you can find a lot of things that look like value-related signals in a lot of places throughout the brain. Where would you think would be the integrator? I mean, so this is, I think, one of the failings we have with sort of sort of trying to design really good decision-making tasks, whether it's with humans or, you know, in the laboratory, you know, preclinical setting. So when evaluating decision, one, you sort of first need to know what the sort of relative value is of all the options. And you're not doing that simultaneously. You know, we might not necessarily have the temporal resolution, but 
Um, you know, you were in your talk, you using the analogy of like eating a delicious Paseo's, you know, Cuban sandwich, which, you know, you compare that to some leftovers. And the thing is, you are independently thinking about the relative to those two values, and then you do a comparison between the two. And a lot of times our experiments are sort of looking at these things in isolation. And how do we actually, you know, where is this sort of comparison, this integration actually potentially occurring? And there's got to be some temporal sort of separation of, I'm thinking about this now, I'm thinking about this now, and now you have a comparison. And is there a brain region that potentially could be sort of integrating all of that, you know, information? And, you know, are we just sort of not at sort of the, I don't know, the, the temporal resolution to be able to sort of look at that sort of separable processes of a decision making? It's, you know, not only, you know, assess value one, assess value two, and then compare the two and then lead to sort of output. And where is that potentially happening? And do we have, is there any neural correlate of that sort of process of, you know, A, B, and then go to C? I definitely don't have a, a simple, straightforward answer. I think, you know, I, I talked about sort of ideas of consensus and controversy in the field, and I think that's one of the areas where there is, has been, and probably continues to be a good bit more controversy of where and how the actual selection is happening, um, how that decision is being made. And there's sort of some debates in the field of whether you're making decisions over possible courses of action, as I've been kind of describing it for convenience and tying into sort of stridal circuitry that I like talking about, but there's also ideas that you might be just choosing between options themselves. You're deciding between eating the leftovers or getting the, the good sandwich, deciding between goods, and only after you've made that decision, you would then, you know, once you've decided what it is you want in the end, you then figure out what the course of action is to obtain that. Um, and so that that's sort of one issue that I think is ongoing in the field, and even even within the space of like trying to decide between actions, where and how that's happening, and probably some distributed process across multiple areas and things. Like, there's a lot of discussion within sort of basal ganglia field is sort of you know this circuitry being involved in action selection. At the same time, there are others that are saying, well, maybe this sort of selection between actions has less to do with a lot of what's happening in there, more just sort of controlling the vigor of movements and then selection is elsewhere. Um, yeah, I, I think there are sort of very interesting ongoing debates as far as the neural implementation, especially about the, the selection part of the process. So how about this decision-making idea about accumulating evidence and a threshold? Uh, so that's a very popular ha- has, framework. Has been, yeah. Um, and something that's that some challenges recently too. <laughs> so, do you want to say something about that? How does that fit into to basal ganglia folks thinking about action selection? Then? As far as accumulation of evidence and sort of because there are neurons that seem to be yeah. that seem to be mediating this evidence accumulation. Yeah, it's interesting. Is right initially people just sort of focused on these sort of very brief, discrete choices. I choose between option A, option B, and then I make my decision it's done without the sort of temporal unfolding of it. And people like uh, Antonio Rangel started importing some of the these sort of di- drip diffusion type models from a lot of the perceptual decision-making uh, literature into the, the neuroeconomics value-guided uh, decision-making uh, types of research, which I think have a lot of power as far as understanding sort of the, even at a very short time scale, how these sort of uh, decision dynamics might be unfolding both behaviorally for sure describing, you know, speed, reaction time, and I don't know if it's necessarily accuracy in this case, but you know, those kinds of trade-offs 
Um, and I guess I'm thinking of looking for those kinds of signals within neural responses at various levels too. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that progresses in the future. Now that there have been some recent challenges to even those sort of uh, drift diffusion, you know, accumulation of evidence type ideas within the perceptual decision-making literature, which, you know, my read to the extent that I've tried to pay attention to that some too is a pretty hot topic right now that, you know, people like Mike Mike Shadlin are still having these ongoing debates with, you know, others, Jonathan Poe and others that have launched some of these challenges to to that being uh, a sort of leading framework for that part of the field too. So I don't know, I think it'll be interesting to see, like, as neuroeconomics has kind of imported those models relatively more recently and later than the perceptual decision-making field, how those will continue to, to guide so the difference is that in the perceptual field, they don't have to worry about motivational variables. Basically, it is just a... I don't know worry about it. You, you kind of need that as a starting point. If you you're a monk, you're, yeah, you, you assume that if, if you're... It's constant or something. Like yeah, that. If, if your motivation. monkey's not sufficiently motivated to work for its juice reward, you're not going to get much behavior out of it that day anyway. Um, motivation but, isn't part of drift or diffusion. No, not part of that model of framework. It's, I think it's an assumed baseline starting point just to get the behavior in the first place. So to incorporate the you know value choices into that, could we just imagine some neurons are calculating value and then that's going into some integrator that's collecting value just like all the other kinds of information? Has anybody ever tried to do that? Try to integrate the treat value like it was sensory. Yeah, and I, I think at least the main thing that comes to mind are the, the couple studies from Antonio Rangel's group, which is um, I think they've done some fMRI, probably some EEG type recordings in, in humans. Certainly a lot of like eye tracking um, behavioral studies that are interesting. Um, but yeah, I think that's where the, that thinking was going, and I haven't kept up as much about in the last few years where that's sort of gone in the field. But yeah, I think that idea has has started to take a hold. Um, so what are the various dimensions of value as we discuss them in terms of, of, of um, your experiments? Like the According to Fiorillo, there's only two, right? <laughs> Was that value on his paper? <laughs> uh, at, at least two dimensions. At least two. Oh, at least two. Well, okay. <laughs> the way I think about it is there are a lot of different sort of economic attributes, factors, things you might consider. That you know the the amount of reward you get at the end. Um, you know any risks associated with it, delays, effort, costs, potential aversive things, um, and these are all just sort of different attributes that might contribute to your ultimate decision. Um. So in terms of the, I want, to, I want you to continue that discussion about turning it into a perceptual level. Uh, like is, what is the, the translation? How do we start discussing value in terms that are less fuzzy? Cause I don't really understand this term value. We don't know that neurons actually even care about value yet, but we talk about it all the time, and we don't know its various dimensions. I mean, it could, um, you know, how hard you have to work for something versus how delicious it is, and how you know your personal. I mean, there's there's all these different. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly not this like objective property of a stimulus that you can 
easily manipulate by you know, dialing up and down luminance or something, but we can we can certainly manipulate in an in a experimental setting by requiring an animal to perform more of a certain action than you know than in other cases, or giving it a larger reward in the end. Those those kinds of things you can directly manipulate, but that's not value in itself, right? That that's always going to interact with motivational state and other um, things like that. So there's always going to be kind of this fuzzy subjective element of, you know, on this day, if I, you know, if I fed my animal too much yesterday, it's not going to be as motivated to work today. And that's going to change all of the ways that it might behave, even if I give it the exact same objective experimental parameters in my experiment today. Um, Seems like value is always in comparison with something, right? So it has to be a choice. Otherwise, you can never measure the value of something. It's always in reference to something else. But that I don't think that makes it all that fuzzy. We can only measure velocity with respect to something else. We don't say velocity is fuzzy. So, so exactly, right? I mean, what is the? Why, why are we uncomfortable with the measurement of? value in the way that psychologists do it, which is just give an animal a choice. And that's a good, like Nick said, you can't really, you can't manipulate it independently, right? Velocity you can manipulate. You can throw a ball hard or throw it softly, right? Um, but value, how, how do you, how do you say can, whether you're directly manipulating the velocity at that point or you're manipulating the hardness of your own throwing motion? Or, yeah. In the end, it's your arm with the velocity, I guess, but yeah, probably the velocity metaphor is going to fail. What happens when we get to the speed of light? Yeah. <laughs> it's just that I, I don't think that, I think, um, I mean, I don't do this, so I shouldn't be defending it, but the, it seems to me that the, that the way that subjective value is measured is pretty straightforward, you, but it always requires a choice. The problem is that we don't know that what the algorithm is that the animal is using to calculate their value. They, the problem isn't that they we don't think they actually are making that calculation. It's just that we don't know exactly what's going into right. it or how they right. do we it. We know they're making a choice at the end of it. We don't we don't even necessarily know that they have that they are integrating things into this one decision variable, this kind of subjective value term as I described it. They're, you know, they're, right. but, th- but this breaks down when you get to habits, and so like as far as choice, and so I mean I know again it's sort of a gradient, but you go from making a conscious to- choice to you know, uh, now making an unconscious choice, so I guess now the ring of uh, thorns or whatever the crown of thorns neurons aren't involved in well, that. I think that, that. <laughs> value doesn't necessarily have to be conscious, right? I mean we but, the, but yeah, that's I the mean, point of habit, though, is now you're making a decision that's independent then of value. But even that division, even moving to something you would describe as habitual, doesn't need to follow along conscious or unconscious lines. And I think I, you know, kind of play, at least when I describe the example where I presumably make this very conscious, deliberative of weighing up different options of whether I want to get a get a sandwich or eat my leftovers or whatever. But it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be this explicit, deliberative thing. It could be a largely implicit thing or just based on my previous actions, but starts to sound a lot more like a habit. Just kind of the, the strength of when I'm in this context, this is what I do. That uh, you know, learning through past experience, that could still be guiding my choice. And it may still, it may or may not wind up being something that looks a lot like a subjective value type signal in the sort of neural correlate, whatever it is that might be contributing to that. I don't think it needs to 
fall along a conscious-unconscious division, whatever that may be. So we might find these subjective value signals in the brain, but they might not necessarily be driving behavior, and they'll drive behavior under different contexts. Is that sort of... I think it's still the same thing that I mentioned earlier on, right? It's, we're, we're trying to find this value encoding in the brain, which may not even, the, the brain may have nothing to do with value whatsoever, right? We, we psychologists just came up with that term. What's the evidence that, that we do? That we, that we oh, have, we, evidence that we have value? That we encode value. That we, I, I, I that think neurons, the, the so best evidence is when you can find some neural activity pattern or whatever your measurement is, just say changes in firing rate that that scales in a quantitative way uh, correlating with the animal's behavioral preferences, the kind of ordering of the options they would choose. In but but you're, you're still probably setting up your experiment to find that right. one value, right? Uh, called value. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, but not, <laughs> that one but parameter not, called value. Yeah, and not only like finding a correlate that looks like something that correlates with this value thing, but also, you know, doing the causal manipulation too, where you can now change the activity of those neurons and change the choices that the animals make. So, um, I mean, a, a really good example is just with the uh, dopamine cells and reward prediction error, right? So reward prediction error actually comes from Scola-Wagner uh, learning theory. And what um, Schultz and uh, et al. did was they just, they found um, an experiment. They designed an experiment so that they could find a reward prediction error um, correlate in the brain. And they found it with dopamine neurons. And then people start to test that causally, right? They have optogenetics, and then if we do this in the exact same type of testing environment, we can actually um, cause the animals to go as if it were a reward prediction error thing. And then, um, but if all you do is let the animal just run around in, in, in a box and sniff around and eat and whatever and record dopamine cells. That, um, I think like uh, some evidence from Henny Yee's lab is coming out now showing that, that the cells do a whole ton of stuff uh, and um, actually um, very little of it, if not if almost none of it, has to do with reward prediction error. Yeah. And it actually has, has correlates much better with just how quickly an animal moves, changes direction from here to there, right? It's yeah. just a, it's just a movement correlated um, cell now. But how do we know they're not making some decision that requires an error as they move around that box? Like we're not delimiting what what they're doing, right? They could be doing all kinds of online things that we're, we have no idea about. Well, again, it's the context. It's both between a self-initiated sort of like free-form sort of like task versus sort of an operant-type task where we're forcing the animal into this sort of specific constraint. And so these neurons could be doing different things under different contexts. And so it might be doing both. And even from a historical perspective, if I'm remembering, right, you guys may know better be thinking about this for a longer time than I have and coming back to the heterogeneity and less constrained behavior later because that's important topics too but you know from the the Schultz perspective I, I don't think that initially they did set out to find this prediction error term in the brain no, yeah, right? I mean, recording right. dopamine yeah. neurons in the context of movement and thinking along the lines of Parkinson's and you know would we see these sort of movement related signals and the you know the, the surprising thing was sometimes but not not really in the way you might expect for really movement you know a system that's really important for movement related you know Allowing and facilitating movement. Actually, their their first paper is they correlated dopamine cells. Yeah, with, I mean, like um, um, 
they have a couple of genophysiology papers where they yeah. just show that it just correlates just with movement of, yeah. of the yeah, really of the long, monkeys. nice yeah. descriptive papers yeah. from the nineties yeah. with Romo and those guys, like, right? You know that, and it was sort of as you sort of record in all these different conditions, you start putting the ideas together, bringing some insight from the the computational guys, and then like, oh, you know, this looks like this predictioner term, and you know, then you kind yeah. of design some new experiments. Um, to kind of so, so like an, another, another example is you could take um, Gary Aston Jones' early work with uh, single unit recordings and the and the LC yeah. and the locus aurelius, yeah. and they if if you had put them in a Schultz experiment, you could have easily called LC neurons reward prediction error neurons, right? Except he decided to call it attention neurons. Um, so up what's, to a point. Up to a point, yes. Know, but so the point then, is, then you it matters. Right? Yeah. So what the point is, it matters what the experimental design is and what you're looking for. So I, I don't know. It's 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 hard to say. Are you saying that we that it's hopeless? Whenever it's not hopeless. I think I think we need to keep our mind our our minds more open and not just take um, algorithms from machine learning and then say, well, the brain obviously works that way also. So let's find um, the let's let's find the parts of the brain that correspond to the parts of the machines that that so we have to get our hypotheses from somewhere. Yeah, we have a hypothesis. You, you don't think we should get them from machine learning? We should, should we should we should get them, but it seems like we always find <laughs> we always seem to be finding um, what we're looking for. Right? It's the whole spotlight uh, idea. Sure. Right, and so if you're only looking there, then you're going to find what's there in that one spot. And it, uh, I mean, I don't know what the solution is, but <laughs> it's a nice discussion. I think when with the like mathematical models of things, uh, one of the big attractions is here is a term in my equation. It wouldn't be great if there was a neuron that corresponded exactly to that term in my equation. And of course, I know that. That's only one possibility. It's possible that there is no one neuron that corresponds to that term, that it's really just a representation of some widely distributed, complicated, networky thing, and that one neuron does it at some point, and another neuron does it at another point, or no neuron does the whole job. But wouldn't it be great if there was a neuron that that? I mean, last night, you guys hosted Ichida here back in the fall at your symposium, right? And I mean, we were talking about his recent rabies chanorodopsin, you know, paper recording from implicit dopamine neurons where, you know, we have this nice tidy equation of the sort of the three things that would make a reward prediction error computation. Let's see if we can find those in the implicit dopamine neurons. And like, I guess you can kind of find kind of a pure reward signal somewhere in some of them. And you can kind of find this pure value signal, this, you know, expect expectancy thing. That's not really the most prominent response you see in any particular nucleus and within any population. There's all kinds of heterogeneity within a given area and, you know, redundancy across all these different areas. And at the end of the day, somehow you integrate them, you, you know, combine them all together and you still get something that a lot of the time looks a lot like a prediction error type term in the dopamine neurons, at least, in a relatively simple Pavlovian task. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think you're right on with that. Yeah. It's a frightening prospect yeah. because yeah. If, if he's right and the dopamine neuron is neither integrating diverse inputs that represent different things. Nor sampling. Uh, well, uh, so you could follow his logic back and say, well, the neurons that go to the dopamine neuron 
they're integrating the diverse things because you can see all the diverse stuff in their in their responses. Mm-hmm. And so now I'd have to go back to the ones mm-hmm. that go to them. Is it? I, I really don't like the idea that at no place in that chain would I would things become ordered and organized and separate. It might it might be like that, but if it's like that, it's a long road between where we are and where we want to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was one of the things we talked about last night was the idea that it is just a simple Pavlovian task. And so maybe there is more order depending upon other types of tasks that, again, it's just a hypothesis out there that, you know, it could there could be order. It just might not be order in this behavior. And how much of this is, I mean, how much do we care about the other end of this in terms of like looking at sort of more finer scale connectivity and understanding where signals impinge on neurons, what part of neurons they're coming from and where they're ending up, like in the striatum. Like it seems like that's still a level that we're working out also. I mean, is, is how much of this plays into the kind of laying out the larger theories, understanding that we don't understand a lot about the fine-grained connectivity, or maybe we just do. I mean, it seems like we we probably feel like we kind of do, but I don't know. There was a cool paper um, last year. I forget I forget the first author, and I forget the last author. <laughs> I just remember that Give me a the, the second to last author, the corresponding author, was Rob Malenka, and they had a really cool study where they sort of combined the output and the inputs to all dopamine cells, right? So they sort of combined Malyushita's um, input type study with um, Lamel and Jochen Roper's study where they looked at all the outputs of the dopamine cells, but they did that on a neuron-to-neuron basis. What they found was that, um, yes, dopamine cells project to specific targets, but not only that, the ones that project to specific targets receive um, some, uh, they use the term biased inputs that come from certain parts of the brain and not other parts of the brain. So, for example, a cell that projects to the dorsal striatum is going to receive a different set of inputs than a cell that projects to the nucleus accumbens. So there is some order, at least in that sense. Yeah, <laughs> now, there's, now we're getting to now some we're order. Starting to have a map. Now we're starting to have a map, so maybe that's the first thing we need. So, so this was one of the long-standing questions about dopamine neurons. Right? That when Schultz was doing his groundbreaking work, a question that would come up all the time whenever he was presenting it is, it looks like all the dopamine neurons are doing the same thing. And he would say, yes, it looks like most of the dopamine neurons, not all of them, but like 70 or 80% of them are doing this thing I've been showing you in this task, in this animal at this moment. And and the, the anatomists among the audience, uh, audiences in those situations were were usually a little bit dissatisfied by that answer because here's a sheet of dopamine neurons and there was a topography in the projections of them that went to different places that seemed to have different functions. And so it seemed uh, it would have been more satisfying to them, not necessarily more true, but more satisfying to them if there was a little map of dopamine neurons that are doing this and another bunch of dopamine neurons that are doing that. So, and that would have the advantage that we could, in parallel, do uh, reward prediction error, whatever it is the dopamine neuron is doing, uh, on more than one thing at a time. And it seemed like 
there's another thing, like these um, theories about machine learning, where it just seems that you wouldn't well, make a machine a different much. way. You wouldn't yeah. make a machine where all the dopamine neurons are doing exactly the same thing. So if all the dopamine neurons are doing exactly the same thing, then something wrong with this machine. This <laughs> machine's broken. <laughs> so, Maybe, so, uh, unless, unless the important part of bringing in additional information is everything else, right? You know, all the other cortical and other inputs into the striatum, say, right? If that's where the information content is coming from, and if dopamine, all it needs to do is this kind of dumb but very useful clunky teaching signal of, yeah, more of that, or, yeah. right? Then, so that turns then it into time. So the alternative was the dopamine neurons just, are, they're all doing the same thing, but they do it at different times. Mm-hmm. So so I have to, ass- I can't assess the value of a bunch of things in parallel. Mm-hmm. I have to do it in series. I have to think about this one or focus on that one and then measure my dopamine output. And then I have to go to yeah. that one. So if I'm a rat running a maze and I've got a choice, I look up one choice and then I look at it. Then I look at it, right? Yeah. And so the dopamine cells fire a lot. When I look this way, then that must mean I want to go this yeah. way or something mm-hmm. like that. So that turns everything from a map of space into a map of time. Well, you can understand anatomists don't like maps of time. They like maps of space. <laughs> and, so, and so when you see this sheet of, of cells, and they have different projections, so you hope you're going to see a paper like the one that Carlos just described, yeah. where it seems that the dopamine cells are doing slightly different things. Right. But we've got decades of research on people recording dopamine cells and behaving animals, mm-hmm. and this sort of map of, yeah. of hasn't emerged from it. And I, I think you will see through, I mean, even as much as, you know, Schultz may become sort of the, the poster child for hanging on to the idea of a lot of homogeneity within the population. And that kind of carries through a lot of Cheetah's recent studies as well, again, in the context of this, this Pavlovian task. Um, you know, a lot of Schultz's writing, he has pointed out the kind of the, the time aspect that, that you mentioned where, you know, it doesn't always seem to be a reward prediction error signal. There's sort of this initial phase that doesn't incorporate that kind of value information, and you know, there may or may not be some other things happening with sustained responses in between the, the various cues he's presenting. So that, that's that been a part of the story there. Um, and even in, in the anatomy, <coughs> concurrently with the, the cell paper, I think Luchin Liu and, and Kevin Bayer may have been the first yeah, author on I think that. You're right. yeah. uh, Liz Steinberg was on it. Um, right, so in addition to that one, around the same time, Uchida had another iteration of uh, their, you know, using the, the pseudotype rabies virus approach mm-hmm. that they published a couple papers on. I think actually that was in that one too. Um, but you know, that one they were mapping projection specific, you know, inputs to projection specific dopamine neuron populations. So based yeah. on what it projects to ventral striatum, dorsal striatum, the sort of caudal tail of the striatum, amygdala PFC, other dopamine targets. And, I mean, kind of the punchline that fell out of that, I think, was generally pretty different from what you were describing in that cell paper, so I don't know how to make the make heads and tails <laughs> out of that. Like, the, the kind of final cartoon from that was that most of the dopamine neuron populations, regardless of where they projected to throughout, you know, other targets outside of the striatum or sort of ventral and anterior dorsal striatum, all kind of get pretty similar sets of inputs relative, you know, proportionally, um, kind of, you know, a lot of different areas, but really strongly dominated by sort of ventral striatal and ventral palatal inputs, those sorts of things. And it's only once you get to the, the population of dopamine neurons that project to the really caudal tail of the striatum, that's where you get, 
a pretty different distribution of inputs, sort of your more classic basal ganglia nuclei, the kind of stuff that, you know, you and Tepra had uh, been working on back in the day of, you know, your GP and, and yeah. um, you know, things like that. And it, it there seems to, within the kind of dopamine neuron heterogeneity literature, you know, there's been a lot of focus on things within the VTA, depending on projection target, but at least within sort of lateral VTA and a lot of SNC, still kind of an idea that a lot of neurons there might be doing fairly similar things. And once you get out into the sort of lateral wing of SNC, that's where you start seeing some pretty different responses as well. Hikasaka's had several papers on this, you know, besides the homogeneity story within Cheetah's recent work, but they now have one or two new papers focusing on the more, you know, lateral SNC caudal tail of the striatum projecting dopamine neurons that seem to be doing something pretty different, especially in the aversive domain, something, um, yeah, a more sort of unsigned uh, salience type signal rather than a pure reward prediction or values uh, scaling thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, a lot of different dopamine still a fun area. <laughs> a lot more to do. <laughs> okay. So you dopamine behavioral neurophysiologists are going to be in business for a bit. No worries about that. For a little while. All right. Well, thanks, Nick Holland, for joining us in the Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm-hmm.